Hello and welcome, you are listening to the Fellow Cast, and today we have an Ask the Pastors episode lined up for you. And in this episode we have a simple straightforward question with maybe not as simple a answer. And the question is, how do we identify and interpret the mark of the beast from the book of Revelation? Help us here, Goth. Yes, good day, Valdi. So today we're dealing with a beast of a topic, with a mark of the beast. And um, we're going to walk through it systematically, uh, because uh, as many I would have heard at the moment, there's this talk about um, a vaccine being the mark of the beast. What do we do with that? Because earlier on, it was a credit card. Um, the Visa credit card was the mark of the beast. And earlier than that, a friend told me that the telephone, that was the mark of the beast. And so many different things. And normally, uh, technological advancements are seen as this thing. Um, so how do we interpret scripture in this context? How, we, how do we not confuse one another and cause fear in one another, but actually receive this as a word of encouragement and instruction from the Lord? So let's start off by first of all um, reading the scripture. So it's in Revelation chapter 13, and let's read from um, verse 15. The second beast was given power to give uh, breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, uh, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So first of all, let's take it in context of uh, the history around it, the historical context. Where does this fit into? Who received this letter? So we ask the question, who is the original audience that received this message? At this time then, around about 100 years um, after Christ, uh, or around about 60 years after the death of Jesus on the cross, this disciple, John, was on an island um, in Patmos, uh, and he received this revelation from God, and it was written then to the churches. And um, the churches at the time were terribly persecuted by the Roman Empire. At first, persecution started through the Jews, you'll remember, uh, when they uh, killed uh, Stephen outside of the city. He stoned him to death. And then afterwards, um, in time, the Roman Empire became the persecution of the church. And at this time, then, Christians were burned to death. They were thrown to animals in the arena and all sorts. So this word, this revelation, starts off with a revelation of John seeing Jesus, the same Jesus that appeared to Ezekiel, that appeared to Isaiah, to Daniel there next to the river. Um, time and time again, this same Jesus that they saw glorified uh, on the mount, those three disciples of his. This Jesus is seen walking around the churches uh, of that period. Uh, and the churches that were the most persecuted by the Romans at the time. So all of this book is written as an encouragement to know uh, God knows the end from the beginning. God is still in charge. God will come and judge those who are busy persecuting you. Righteousness will prevail. The entire book is a book of great encouragement. 
We, we find similar kinds of um, uh, prophetic utterances given to Daniel and during another time of great distress. Uh, Ezekiel also, around the time of Daniel, got the same kind of, we call it apocalyptic prophecies. These prophecies with um, strange images. But every time it is given during a time of great distress of God's children. So it's a book of encouragement. So in the context of all of this, how do we read this then, the mark of a beast? So that's historical context for you. Secondly, let's speak about what is apocalyptic prophecy. Why does God reveal things like that? Well, we have to keep in mind that God knows the future from the beginning. It says, He counted my steps even before I took one. He knows the days of my life. He knows absolutely everything. And all throughout Scripture, we see that God can prophesy things in great detail, way in advance, and it is fulfilled exactly. Remember that prophecy about Cyrus. Cyrus will, my servant, uh, Isaiah said, he will send you back and he will say, let my temple be rebuilt. And exactly, a man by the name Cyrus in the uh, Medo-Persian Empire says, go and do that. Go and rebuild the temple. So if God wanted to, he could give us these end-time prophecies in the book of Revelation in that much detail. He can tell us exactly what's going to happen on what day, what is the name, uh, how will it take place. But he doesn't. And we have to ask why. Why does God choose, if he can tell the future perfectly, why does he choose to not give us all the details? As we said, we, we get the same kind of apocalyptic prophecies through, oh, it's a tongue twister, through Daniel and Ezekiel as well, uh, with beasts and all sorts of other things. He chooses to cloak the revelation that he gives in mystery. And we have to be happy with that. We have to say, all right, God, we'll receive it the way that you give it. If you don't give us all the details, we will be happy to receive it the way that you choose to give it in mystery, cloaked in mystery. Because at the end, by the end of Re the book of Revelation, we just know enough to know that God knows the future. That's what he's actually telling us. He's telling, I know the end from the beginning. Trust me. Even in the middle of hardship, trust me, I know what's taking place. I am still in control and I will bring to fulfillment the end times according to my plan. Perfect justice will prevail and I will be Lord and you will reign with me for all eternity if you walk faithfully with me. So just in that context, let's take this mark of the beast. Did God clearly tell us what it is? No. It is still cloaked in mystery. Uh, he just told us enough to know that the enemy marks those who belongs to him. With that then, let's look at the genre in terms of, is it literal? Is it figurative? Because that'll change a, a big deal about how we read this passage. Um, if we're looking for a literal mark, something that's literally put placed on my right hand or on my forehead, then we have to treat the rest of the passage the same. Because if it's a literal mark with a literal number clocked into my hand, clocked into my forehead, then we're looking for a literal beast of the earth roaming around. And together with that, a beast that comes somewhere out of the ocean. And together with that, 
chapter 12, a dragon that is hauled down from heaven and takes with his tail a third of the stars of the heaven down to earth. But clearly from chapter 12 onwards, we see that it's figurative language. It's figurative. The, that, um, that dragon cast out of heaven, we told clearly, that is the ancient serpent, that snake, Satan. And then from there on out, we, we look at the beast coming out of the, the sea and say, all right, but this is also a figure. It is a figure of a, um, some sort of government or some sort of power uh, with the spirit empowering people to reign. Uh, same as the one out of the earth. We're not looking for something uh, physical over there, but suddenly when we get to the mark, can we then make that physical? if all of the rest of the passage is dressed in figurative speech. Think about that. How do we interpret this? Let's then look at the Old Testament. Do we see something similar? Do we see marks placed on God's children or on those who are against God? It's interesting in the Old Testament, we actually get several of those. In the book of Deuteronomy, we told God says to them, this law that I give you now, put it as a sign on your hand. Put it as a sign on your forehead. But in all of that passage, we see that um, the way that the Pharisees would later interpret it by literally taking the law of God and uh, binding it around their hand and binding around their forehead. That's not what God actually meant. It's a figurative speech back there. It, it means keep it on your mind always. Keep it in your deeds always. Never forget it. He even says, put it on your doorpost. Speak to your kids about it when you go in and out. Um, he's just saying, do not forget it. Do not forget it. So God back there in Deuteronomy wants us to have his instructions, his words, his truth uh, as something so tangible that it's right here with us. It's in our deeds. It's in our hands. It's in our thinking, on our heads. Um, later in the book of Ezekiel, we get another spiritual interpretation of something similar when God says, um, he, he says to the, uh, to the angels, go out before I bring judgment on this place uh, in Jerusalem. Go out and put a mark on all those who have been faithful to me. Put a mark on them. And they go out and put a mark and those who do not have a mark are seen as those who are against God and not for him. Um, so the, the whole thing about a mark in the Old Testament is not something new to us. Uh, God uses that image. But every time that he uses it back there, it's not a physical thing. Uh, nobody could see in Jerusalem the mark that the angels placed on God's children. It's something in the spirit. Um, and similar when we come into the New Testament, we then told that the spirit of God is a seal that marks us. We belong to him. The Spirit is the mark placed on the children of God, is the seal placed on us. So in contrast to that then, let's say, um, what about the enemy? Does he also mark with his Spirit those who belong to him? And I think yes. When Jesus has an encounter with the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he actually calls it out and he says, your father is the devil. All right. Now, now I know that I gave my heart to God. As a child of God, I'm told that my father is God. How do I know that? Because I'm born of his spirit. I've got the Holy Spirit living inside of me. 
So we have to say in a similar sense then that those who have the father as their devil has the spirit of the enemy living inside of them. Uh, and it's not a strange thing for us. Jesus cast out demons quite frequently. And um, he said to Nicodemus, you need to be born of my spirit in order to be my child. All right. So when I come into the book of Revelation, interpreting it not just in the in the context of the passage or of the book, but in the passage of uh, scripture, interpreting scripture, I would say that this mark has been around for a long time. Especially, I'd say from the writing of this book, at least, this has been in fulfillment. Just like God has been marking those in the spirit who belongs to him, the enemy has all along been marking those who belong to him. And we are marked with the spirit. We are marked with the Spirit. That's the seal. In the spiritual realm, it is clearly seen that I'm a child of God. And somebody who is not is clearly seen to have a mark on them that is not of God's Spirit, but of the enemy's Spirit. Another way of looking at this is in terms of salvation. Um, how do I get saved? How do I become a child of God? Because what this passage often does, it, it causes this fear to stir up in children of God to say, but uh, what if I received that mark of the beast on me? What if I now got the credit card and suddenly it comes out that, oh my goodness, everybody with a credit card has the, the seal of the enemy on them, has the mark of the beast. It, it stirs up that kind of fear. And we have to put that to rest because what does the... The message of salvation say, if I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is my Lord, then I'm a child of God. That's the gospel message. Clearly, all throughout the New Testament, we told, especially in Romans, it is not by works. It is by faith that I'm saved. In James, we challenge to say that your actions will demonstrate your faith. So you will see by my actions that I've got faith and therefore by faith I'm saved, right? But we have to ask the question then, how do I lose my salvation? Does the New Testament say anything about that? Well, there are some passages that indicate that. Um, and we're going to go to one particular one that sort of sums it up for me in 2 Timothy from verse 11. It says, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, here's the crux, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So if we take those verses, what does it say? If I'm without faith, if I'm unfaithful to God, I will be like the prodigal son. By grace, he will remain faithful to me. But he does give me the choice that if I disown him, if I say Jesus Christ is not my savior, he is not the son of God, he is not the savior of the world, well, then I've made a faith call out to say that he does not pay for my sins. My sins will therefore be on myself. I will be disowned. So when we come to the mark of the beast then, what needs to happen in order to receive the mark of the beast, in whatever form it comes. 
And at this time, let me say clearly that I do not necessarily look for a technological fulfillment of this world, some technological advancement that suddenly is now the mark of the beast once and for all. If something like that comes about, and it could well be, I believe it will not be the first time that there will be a mark of the beast on those who does not belong to God. Just like not for the first time, uh, the Spirit of God has now filled me a believer and is a seal on me. I believe the enemy has been marking those who belongs to him, who chooses him uh, for all time already. And it is clear in the spiritual realm. But let's say some technological advancement comes about and um, I have a choice whether I choose that or whether I choose Jesus Christ as my savior. That would be a mark of the beast. In other words, just like I cannot come to salvation by accident, is it an, it's an act of faith. It is a willful decision and a declaration of my heart and of my mouth that says he is my savior. In the same sense, I do not believe I can by accident lose my salvation. And I think that needs to put the children of God at rest. Uh, we cannot be tricked to deny Jesus Christ as our savior. The spirit of God loves me enough to convict me in my spirit and say, Goth, watch out, watch out. Do not do this. If you do this, that will be disowning me as your Savior and your Lord. So we always say that the enemy is cunning, and he certainly is, right from the word go in the Garden of Eden. He was very cunning in his approach to Eve and then to Adam um, to sin, to disobey God. But they had clear instructions from God. They knew exactly what they should do and what they should not do in terms of that tree and eating from that tree. So while he came with great cunning, they had a clear conviction in their spirit that what we're about to do is disobedient to God. In the same sense, I do not believe the enemy can trick me into losing my salvation because I have a spirit who convicts me of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He speaks into my heart that conviction and I will have an inward conviction to say, no, this is wrong. This decision is against the will of God. So I will rest in that. I, I cannot be tricked to suddenly one day wake up with a mark of the beast on me. Another element then before we close off is that the difficult aspect about they were not able to buy or to sell if they did not have the mark on them. How do I interpret that in this means that I've now been going about this word? Well, Several times in history, since the giving of this particular word, there has been times of great persecution for Christians. And several times it came down to um, them being pushed out of society. At the time that they received this word, um, Christians were very much marginalized. They were persecuted in society, not just being killed, but also uh, being pushed aside because they did not worship the emperor. Remember, the emperor of Rome was seen as a god and he had to be worshipped as god. And the main reason why there was persecution of Christians is because they stood up and said, no, we only worship one god and his son, Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore they were thrown to the beasts. So 
they were pushed out of society and were not able to um, take part in much of the market life of it. Uh, they had to very often hide underground in their catacombs um, and try and meet there in secret. So yes, this word was very much fulfilled for them. If they did not receive that mark on them that says, we will worship the emperor, um, then they were pushed out and they could not do business or live in society freely. And several other times this has been fulfilled in persecutions all throughout the world, um, where Christians lost their jobs because they did not have the same convictions as their employers or such. Even here in South Africa, we had a time where if you were not part of a particular um, church denomination, uh, you could lose your job. You weren't able to get a, a government post or something like that. So this has been fulfilled many times over, um, that money is part of a decision for Jesus or against Jesus. And then lastly, coming to that money aspect, the number 666, what do we do with that? If I look in scripture, there's only one, one other passage that has that particular number in. And I actually turn then to that part in Kings where it says that um, Solomon's earnings annually was um, 666 talents of gold brought in on his ships together with many other jewels. And just in, in quick sense, um, the, the instructions in the book of Deuteronomy regarding the king, when God says, when you come into the land and when you ask me for a king, let that king know the following instructions. Those instructions were very specific. He should not have many wives. He should never accumulate a large amount of horses. He should never return to Egypt to purchase horses. Um, God also said in Deuteronomy, he should not accumulate a lot of um, wealth, a lot of gold and silver. And when Solomon then comes to power and uses his wisdom to uh, gain all of these things for himself, it is not a compliment to Solomon. It is rather a statement of saying, Solomon broke God's law again and again and again. He accumulated so many wives that nobody could think how you could do that. He um, made deals with Egypt to purchase horses, not just buy them for himself in incredible numbers and build cities for all his charioteers and for all his horse keepers. Uh, he also sold it on behalf of Egypt to other nations. Um, so he broke that law through and through, absolutely. And then when it says about the, the wealth that he accumulates, uh, 666 uh, talents of gold brought in on the fleet of ships that specifically made for that purpose of trade, um, it's saying Solomon disobeyed God. At this time, it is clear that Solomon loves earthly wealth. He loves mammon more than he loves anything else. So, in that context then, this particular number points to me to back there where a man lost the heart of David, a heart that was seeking and chasing after God. His son came to the throne and decided to chase after the love of the world, to chase after mammon, earthly pleasures and earthly securities. Back here in the Revelation then, it rings so much true to many other things of the book where Babylon the Great has to fall before Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God, can come back to earth again. It rings true to so much what Jesus said. He says there's only two gods. Either you serve God or you serve mammon. 
So this to me is a warning um, that the mark of the beast is a mark of do you love this world more than you love God? Are you like um, like Esau who loves the things of the world so much that he will add a drop of the hat, give up his birthright? Or are you like Jacob who recognizes there are some things much greater than what this world can offer? God's blessing. That's important. Um, serving God, loving God, and chasing after His plans for my life. Uh, so that's my interpretation. It's really, it's, it's, it's my view of looking at this. Hopefully it gives you some clarity and some insight. And go away, look at the passage again, and think about these things. And then decide, how do I make my choices in respect to these things? <music>